0: Hey, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Tim McIntosh. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for The Incurable Reader, on which we are reading Cormac McCarthy's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Road. The book that we were referring to as the Book of Life, just a minute ago here on the podcast. A Book of Life. A A Book book. of Life. Yeah, not not the Book of Life. I don't think. In which your name is written. Because you know what, there are no names. There are in this no book. names. No so, names
1: are written in this book. No
0: names are written in this book. Well, we are here to dig deep over the next three, four weeks—three weeks plus the Q and A—in the world of uh, of a post post-apocalypse um, of fathers and sons and of um, discussion. Uh, I'm guessing on the four levels of interpretation in medieval uh, literature. Uh, Tim, you're
2: back. I'm back, David. I'm back. How, how's it been? It's been good. My baby got baptized two weekends ago. Glory
1: to God.
2: It was a really wonderful moment. I've never, I was so excited about it. I was like, why am I so excited about my? <laughs> I mean, you can guess the reasons why. <laughs> because um, of the actual
3: book of life. It turns out. Right.
2: Uh, so, anyway, I don't know if I have any other big news That's aside a big from one. that. That's a big That's one. That's a good one. Yeah. How's your wife? Oh, actually, I do have one other big one, and it involves the three of you and me. Nah, nah. Okay. This week, by the time this comes out, this week, we will drop on another podcast Mm. called The Play's the Thing, Mm. the last episode Mm. of the entirety of Shakespeare's canon. Amazing. The play's the thing. It's huge. We, it all started here with this group. And so you guys came back and we had a little reunion and a discussion over King John. And that will drop next week. And that means that we will have done all of the works of William Shakespeare, all mm. of Shakespeare's plays. It's a big accomplishment. So that's kind of Tim. a big moment. Yeah, it's
1: it it big yep. deal. That's so that was an honor to be a
2: part of it too. Yeah, it was fun yeah. to record. It was really fun to record.
1: I hope that our listeners will go listen to it. Tim, I have a confession to make. Tell me. I, Shakespeare cheated on you. I just did a podcast with the (laughs) classical mind on Julius Caesar. So I talked about Shakespeare on a podcast with somebody other than you. I'm sorry to be telling you this in such a public setting.
0: embarrassing. (laughs) Is Shakespeare cheated um, hyphenated in this case? Yes. 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 Shakespeare cheated. So, Tim so I had a funny experience, Shakespeare related. There's a, a, speaking of hyphens uh, with, with my kids last night, we're planning to go up to Wisconsin in the fall, and we're going to go see some yeah. family and do some things like that. It's going to be a boy's trip. I'm taking my boys. The girls are staying home. So the, my kids are getting really into football. This will, I will connect this in just a minute. They're getting really into football. We'll see. And uh, <laughs> thanks <you>, Sean. <laughs> and they really want to go to see a Packers game. Packers oh, are our yeah. team. They want to go to Lambeau field. It's not cheap to go to Lambeau Field. My grandma can knows she knows people. Uh, she can help us get tickets, but it's not cheap. Lambo's to are never cheap. Lambo's are, are never cheap. So then I said, "All right, you guys, I'm paying for everything else. You Got to incentivize them a little bit, right? You save up money. I'll pay for everything else in this trip. But you got to buy. You got to save up money between now and like September, October, November to buy a ticket for the game." So oh, they're trying, yes. now they're trying to come up with all kinds of ways to, to make money <laughs> and save money and still be able to somehow spend money, right? It's tricky for a kid with uh, extremely uh, limited income. You know, Pokemon cards and football cards and then also saving money, it doesn't jive real well. Not uh, the same price point. Right. It's, yeah, it's, it's tricky. So I told them, this is where it connects, Sean. I told them... Here we go. If you read 50 books this year, I'll give you 50 bucks, right? Wow. So really, if you think about it, not that great. The value is not great there, right? No, a book, dollar a buck, book? A book. Yeah. but also they had to read 50 books anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to assign a bunch of books to them for school and all that anyway. So now they're getting sure. doing their, they're getting their cake and they're eating it too. If you ask me. And, uh, so last night I walk into the room and Coulter goes my, he's 12. He goes, okay, dad, if I read all of Shakespeare's plays, will those count as individual books? Genius. And I looked at him I said, Yes, I, I will count individual Shakespeare plays as individual books. So yes, if you read King John and you read Timon of Athens and so forth, then I will give you a dollar for each Shakespeare play you read. And he goes, what's Timon of Athens? <laughs> yeah. And I said, yeah. yeah, I know. It's a good right? question. So then, he, so then he picks up, you know, the, the Charles and Mary Lamb book of the stories of, of the place. And he mm-hmm. goes, how about this? If I read this, will that count as $1 for each play? And what did you say? I'm curious. I, what did you say? I said no. Uh-huh. The, the, one, the book of Charles and Mary Lamb's plays don't count. That's one book. That's not That's one book. 20 plus books. Yeah. But it led us to a conversation about uh, King John and certain plays that may not be, be, may not be as good as others. And he had lots of questions. It also led me to um, discovering that Charles and Mary Lamb didn't do a lot with the historical plays, which is a shame because uh. I... I could, could use access to those. Now, all of this brings me back to the question of uh, fathers and sons because I'm a father and he's my son and uh, I'm just going to use that as our transition into this book. So nice. first of all, congratulations how you on were at segways. First of all, congratulations <laughs> on finishing The Plays the Thing. That is, that is a yes. great accomplishment and everybody yep, here, should go here. back and listen to those and not only just listen to them now, but when you need them in the future. In fact, yeah. when Coulter's yeah. finished reading King John and Measure for Measure, I know exactly where to send him. There you go. Tim will pay him a dollar per episode. Yeah, that's right. He's going to be going to that game b- before we know it. Um, so, Tim, it's so great to have you back. You were going to say a minute ago something about you're back f- for what? You
2: were. It was on the tip of your tongue, and then the conversation shifted. A book that I love almost without measure. I love this book so much <laughs> I had to stop myself <laughs> from finishing it like on the first night that I opened it up again. I can't express how much so, I love this book.
0: One question I want you to have in the back of your head is whether the reading of it this time mm. has changed now that you have a daughter I and mean, it's not she's not right terribly old yet, but nonetheless and she's not a son, but yeah. nonetheless you're a parent. And that I want to know if that how that has impacted your reading. And Heidi, you are not a father, True. but you are a parent. And so I'm sure it still uh can can impact your reading of it. It's
1: universal.
0: Uh, <clears throat> right, yeah. Um this is a book that came out in 2006 I believe it won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize it also won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Fiction in 2006 it was then adapted into a 2009 movie by John Hill directed by John Hillcoat for those who don't don't know or are are choosing not to read this book but are going to listen to the conversations which I hear Ooh. tell there are some people who are going to do that this is a book that tells the story of a a father and a, and a son as they journey across a landscape that has been destroyed by um, an unspecified sort of post-apocalyptic. What's the best word, Sean? Cataclysm. How about that? Cataclysm. Uh, yeah, the, I like the, it. Uh, industrial civilization. Everything is is destructified. There's not a lot, of, not a lot going on. People are hunting each other down, and in some cases eating each other. It's, it's, a rather, um, it's a rather bleak scenario. Yeah. Tim, here's a simple question. Without encroaching on the conversations we're going to have about yeah. all the themes and everything, in a couple of sentences, why do you love this book to the degree that you do? And also, do you love it more than King John I definitely or less? love it
2: more than King John. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, King so you're John. You're saying Cormac McCarthy is better than Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotcha. love this book because... I love how Cormac McCarthy writes. And another big reason is the ending of the book, but I don't want to say anything more about the ending of the book. Those are two really quick answers. Mm -hmm. I could come up with a dozen pretty quickly if I needed to, but I'll leave it at those two.
0: Sean, you've read this book how many times now? I think this is my fourth time reading the book. Okay, okay. Yeah, I and read
3: you, it. I read it right after it came out, mm-hmm. and then, Same. and then I didn't read it again until I had kids, which was a, a, a few years after that. Um. <laughs> and you've subsequently gone back to it
0: multiple times. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have, and uh, I I love it too. It's great. And Heidi, what's your experience with this book?
1: So this is my first time reading it. I started to read it a while ago. Mm-hmm. And I gave up on it because I was so scared. Yeah, understandable. So, yeah, <laughs> what do you mean? I was scared of what would happen to the boy, and I didn't want okay. to really know because I know Cormac McCarthy, and I was like, I know he's, he's a cruel mean. one. And so, <laughs> Mr.
2: McCarthy,
3: right? The fear of, of the fear of like terrible violence occurring it lurks to around someone every you page, I think, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I read to the point and we we read this in this section, but I read to the point when his mother mm. commits suicide and yeah. I was like I'm out. Um but then I oh, and then I looked it up on Wikipedia to make sure the uh-huh. boy was okay and then I was <laughs> determined not to read it after I read some of that. And then I but now I read it and I read it just this week and I love it. I really I really loved it. So, so this, this is the first time for all of the listeners finished. who are not sure. Yes, the first time okay. I finish, yeah. for all okay. the listeners who are not sure whether or not to read this book, read it.
0: Yeah, you said a minute ago that you like the way yeah. Cormac McCarthy writes. What is it about him that you love? We, you and I did a episode on this. We kind of made our Cormac McCarthy Mount Rushmores yeah. when he passed away. Was that a year ago or so? Um, so people can go back and listen to that. But if you could do it, kind of a brief summary of what you think he's best at as a writer. um, We, you know, that might be a good entryway into this conversation.
2: Could I read a paragraph that kind of captures what I think he's one of the things that he's so good at? I'm going to step past. I think he's a master of dialogue. Like I think he captures vernacular as well as anybody I've ever read. Like Mark Twain is a great capturer of vernacular. And I think Faulkner also, and I think McCarthy belongs in them. So this is from the first page, what I'm going to read. There's I, a, I agree um, with that. There's a dream sequence on the first page, and our main two characters are the father and the son. And the father has a dream of stepping into this cave, and I'm just going to read, starting with, like pilgrims in a fable swallowed up and lost among the inward parts of some granitic beast. Deep stone flues where the water dripped and sang, tolling in the silence the minutes of an earth and the hours and the days of it and the years without cease, until they stood in a great stone room where lay a black and ancient lake, and on the far shore a creature that raised its dripping mouth from the rimside, rimstone pool and stared into the light with eyes dead white and sightless as the eggs of spiders." It swung its head low over the water as if to take the scent of what it could not see. Crouching there, pale and naked and translucent, its alabaster bones cast up in shadows on the rock behind it, its bowels, its beating heart, the brain that pulsed in a dull glass bell. It swung its head from side to side and then gave out a low moan and turned and lurched away and loped soundlessly into the dark. I love that. And it's like, it's a very McCarthy-esque passage. Like, what is the word granitic? A granitic beast? Some granitic beast? Does that mean like related to granite? I don't know. Because I don't have the 19th, 18th century like dictionary that McCarthy seems to pull (laughs) about a tenth of his
0: He's using the original Roget's thesaurus yeah, or whatever? Yeah, that's what he
2: does. He has this really um, ancient vocabulary. and every paragraph, I will find someone and I'm like, I've got a decent vocabulary. Never heard that one. Never heard that one. Never yeah. heard that one. But it contributes to a really distinct and I think beautiful style. That was a particularly dark passage of a particularly dark book. So I don't want that to be re- representative of the whole book. Um, but that just as a representative of his style, I think is lovely. I can, like the metaphor of eyes, like dead spider eggs, like, wow, I can, I can absolutely see it. I can see that. And I think he's wonderful at writing in a prose that is brightly suggestively visual. He almost writes with like a, um, with a movie maker's eyes.
0: Heidi, there's a there's a um a common thing that's mentioned about McCarthy's prose where it, it'll call it things like spare, or it will call it like you know, Hemingway-esque or different things like that. Um do you see do you agree with that assessment of his writing? Like would you use those words? It's like so there's like even in the review with its spare prose, McCarthy's post-apocalyptic odyssey from 2006 managed to be both harrowing and heartbreaking. That's from a Entertainment Weekly's book review thing back in when they made a list of the best books of the century. Is that how you would describe
2: it?
1: Uh, I think in this book, yes. It's different in some of his other books. I, no Country for Old Men is different. All the Pretty Horses, which we read on the show, is very different than that. Um, you could tell it's Cormac McCarthy, but it doesn't have that kind of like. And she almost like telegraphic style that this book does, but it works for this book, I think beautifully, and i I'm just gonna read a couple sentences here. This is from page one seventeen um it
0: no spoilers, I hope, Heidi.
1: No, 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 no. I mean it's it's a spoiler in the sense that it's something that happens later in the book, but <laughs> it's not going to surprise anybody, because pretty much what's happening right now. uh he carried him across the field, stopping to rest each fifty counted steps. When he got to the pines, he knelt and laid him in the gritty duff and covered him with the blankets and sat watching him. He looked like something out of a death camp, starved, exhausted, sick with fear. Right? You can hear it, it's just like telegraphic. There's more sentence fragments in this book than there are in some of his others. He doesn't have the long kind of like um circular sentences that kind of loop back upon itself that he does in All the Pretty Horses. Uh, and in the whole border crossing in the whole border trilogy i what i like about mccarthy and think that he's genius at as you just said tim is that he his form fits the content right he you can read cormac mccarthy and i i think you can pick him out of a lineup right if you yeah. had like here if you were like here's some representative american authors which one's cormac mccarthy i think you can <laughs> nail it but yeah. still, he adapts the style and the form to the content. And this one, it's little fragments, like little memory fragments. Memory is so important to this novel. Um, and it's the the way somebody would think about their life if they were living their life in fragments like this man and his son are. Um, but it still has that, um, that beauty and that poetry to it that is... Um, that is characterized by longer sentences than some of his other books.
0: So do you, you guys are comparing it a little bit to all the pre horses, no country uh, for old men, things right. like that. Tim, I hate to put you on the spot like this. I, and I don't, we, we did talk about this, I suppose on that episode. Is this, do you like this better than any of his other work?
2: I think if I had, if I had to choose, I would choose Sutri. That's my favorite of his books. That's right. And that book, man, Heidi, talk about like long meandering sentences. Yeah. That sucker. It's and we don't see well, that
1: one's often compared to Faulkner.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Accurately. And every once in a while in this book, The Road, he'll he'll bust out with a sentence or a paragraph that's almost like, hey, just in case you thought I couldn't do it anymore, I can. <laughs> I'm just doing something different here, and to your point, Heidi, I'm doing something that fits this landscape and this story. But I can still, I can still get sutry on you if I need to. Just, you know.
0: Well, the paragraph I that you read, read is a little bit like pretty that. Pretty close to yeah. that, except that it has periods, so it creates yes, right. the fragments. Yeah. I mean, that's the, really the only difference is instead of a comma or no punctuation at all, he just puts a period. Yeah, because right. he doesn't yeah. introduce a new subject. So, th- and and then that's a very different style yeah st- structural than what Heidi read which is the Hemingway there's a there's a there is that punchiness That's there's like is,
1: subject predicate right and yeah, it's, yeah yeah oh, kind of over and over and and it's not monotonous but it is fragmentary and direct
0: yeah yeah he seems to bounce in and out of a that direct prose with a sort of impressionistic mm-hmm. fragmentary style like and it bounces back and forth and that's one of the things that can make this book challenging i'm convinced in fact that people don't read this book despite what heidi said because they're actually scared i think people read books that that are difficult all the time i'm convinced that people get stuck stuck in this book because of that bouncing back and forth that in between impressionistic fragmentary writing and the the directness of the, like the the of of actual like action writing, and I don't mean like mm-hmm. action scenes. Um, and I know like I I don't mean to like pick an argument with you there, Heidi. Like, like oh no, you weren't scared, Heidi. That's not oh, what I'm mean, saying. I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but books
1: about kids in danger. Scary. You're
0: not. But I don't think you would have been scared in the same way if it weren't for the impressionistic nature of the writing, because you're lost in it.
1: Yeah. So the style creates the fear, is what you're saying? Yeah. I think it it's a form and attention. function. Thing. It's a yeah. formal kind of choice on his part.
0: Yeah. Because you can't ever really get a grasp. You can't really grab onto anything. in a lot of like, I have to, you know, I've read this book multiple times. I mean, still, I'm going back, like this, this, the section that Tim read, I probably read it 10 times to get a grasp of where the dream starts and where it yeah. ends. And well, like, what's the creature? No. Wait, what, you know, things like, and it just takes, you just don't have a lot of, like individual scenes are hard to grasp onto so you kind of have to wait for the impression of them to all kind of come together almost like a pointless totally.
2: painting. I, it's so funny mm-hmm, that you bring this mm-hmm. up. I Galen is reading All the Pretty Horses. Like this is a major victory for me by the way. I've wanted to read oh. Cormac McCarthy for so long. But it's, you know, I didn't want to push too hard and also yeah, my yeah, wife yeah. is exhausted. We've got a 10 and a half month old who still doesn't sleep yeah, right. great. She's exhausted, but she's reading all the pretty horses. And every once in a while, she'll read me a sentence or a paragraph and she'll be like, what does this mean? And I have to say, <laughs> I kind of think that there you sometimes less in the road, but more in all the pretty horses and sutry, you kind of have to squint to see what he's saying. And you know what I mean? Uh, like you yeah. have to be like, I don't really know, but I'm going to imaginatively go in the direction that I think he wants me to go. And I think nine times out of 10, you're going in the right direction.
0: Yeah. Well, it's
2: because they compound
0: those experiences yeah. compound over time. Yeah, so yeah, as like, right. you get that, you do that 10 times and eventually it starts to cohere into an image that you, right, can, right, 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 right. you can have an experience with. Should, Heidi, go ahead. What are you going to say?
1: Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think that's why the title of this book is so brilliant. It's just The Road. Like it's just that. That's it's so simple. But I think that that anchors you from the very beginning. Like you begin the book knowing that this is a journey and that it's a forward journey, it's a narrative journey. Um and then I I think you kind of have to even know the title to read the first couple pages. Mm. <laughs> Because it doesn't tell you what's going on. So, like I remember the first time I read it, I knew nothing about it, and I didn't even finish it. But I knew from the beginning, I'm reading about these people that are on a road. I know that sounds dumb, but like it, it to David's <laughs> point, it's, it's so. Um, you just, I really like the the word impressionistic that David has used a couple times. It is like an impression. You're and the impressions build upon. Uh, and cohere into a narrative. But at the beginning, you just need to know like there's some people going on a road.
0: And the unusual thing is that the dreams themselves actually are like the binding agents. Mm, yeah. Whereas normally a dream sequence takes you out of the story. Here, the dream sequences are the thing that like, it's like the brushstrokes that bind all of your, all the other strokes together or whatever. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to art, but uh, Sean, uh, your turn to talk. <laughs> well, I'm,
3: I'm glad that you said that because it just made me think of something that I have been paying attention to this time through, which was the, his use of analogy. In this work in particular, that's often where his language gets the most vivid
2: mm.
3: is when he's creating analogies. And it is the analogies that are the most, well, I already said vivid, but concrete and tangible. And it's almost like you... You sort of wander out of the the events, the immediate events, into something, into another world. And really, it's partly because uh, it's sort of Homeric the way he uses his analogies. It's partly because the analogies are drawn from things that don't exist in the world anymore mm. for the characters in the novel. So I've been trying. I've been marking them as I as I come across them. Here's one. Look at that. The so much close reading happening on this episode. Yeah. So much. I mean, I'm, that's so that's what's great about this novel. There's so it's so sparse that it, it, everything stands out. I don't hmm. know if that makes sense. <laughs> that's right. It's not like reading a Henry James novel uh, where Right, its kind the of words are like It's it's like rococo. So you got to pull aside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh the man thought he seemed some sad and solitary changeling child announcing the arrival of a traveling spectacle in Shire and village who does not know that behind him, the players have all been carried off by wolves. Uh, is one.
2: What a line. (laughs) Uh,
3: let's see. He sat beside him and stroked his pale and tangled hair, golden chalice. Good to house a God. Uh, Sighted there in the darkness, the frail blue shape of it looked like the pitch of some last venture at the edge of the world, something all but unaccountable. And so it was. <laughs> the hot black mastic sucking at their shoes and stretching in thin bands as they stepped. That one's not a simile or, or a metaphor, but uh, just the, the vocabulary, again, the, the, the diction, the black mastic sucking uh, it's just, what's that mean? Oh, so good, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but you know
2: what it means, right? Even though you don't know, right. know what it means, just right? squint yeah. at right. it. If you yeah. squint at it, you kind of <laughs> will know what
1: it means.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Heidi, go ahead.
1: It's just so archetypal, too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I could just wraps. I mean, the, the carrying the fire, right? The carrying the fire. He comforts his son. We're the good guys. We're carrying the fire we all to your point about squinting at it we all know what that means right we we have we're we're carrying this warmth this goodness forward but then if you if you know mythology you know the story of the aeneid right when aeneas carries his son out of burning troy carrying the yeah. household gods and the sacrificial fire that he's going to light when he founds rome so it's this exiled displaced father and son uh, and then there's this repetition that's taking place in this story, or is there a question mark right? Is this <laughs> part of a bigger story? Is this uh you kind of just don't know right is is there is there a god is that is laying on them a sacred duty? Is this a meaningful quest, or is this uh a kind of nihilistic vision of the death of all stories, right? And you don't know right now, yeah, um, but there it's echoed then in that metaphorical language that's so laden with symbol and so laden with uh, with the tradition of stories that if you squint at it, you still get it. But if you bring that with you, it deepens it
0: so I've written down three or four questions that I'd like to get to this episode uh, before we get even deeper into the plot. And I want to list them for you and see if you guys would, you know, where you guys want to start with that. Uh, And also, this gives us some context for the listener. Um, You also can say, "We, we, uh, we revolt. We don't like these questions. We have better questions, and we vote against it." Okay, this is a book that gets called or referred to as a fable. It's his most fabular, fabulist. I don't know what uh, novel. It references the notion of fables a couple times, including on the first page near where Tim read. So we can talk about that. In what ways is it a fable? How does that impact the way we should be reading it? Two, uh, what do we tell the people who are scared, <laughs> like Heidi, who, who are having a hard time here at the beginning uh, where the glimmers of hope are uh, just smolders, um, embers? Um, we talked a little bit about the pros, so we can we'll continue to do that, I think, as we go. Uh, we talked a little bit about the fragments. I think we've probably covered that enough for right now. But the question of a memory, those memory, you know, the, the memory novel. Heidi mentioned that. We could talk about that. Those first two about being the fables and about what do we tell the person who's scared. Uh, I want to talk about those for sure. And then this third one is one that is related to what Heidi was just saying. So I wanted to bring it up. You mentioned the title earlier, Heidi. The Road. It's simple. It's direct. It orients us. But the unusual thing about the title is that unlike most road books, uh, including the Odyssey, we don't know where our characters are going and nor do we know where they're coming from. In fact, the book consistently obscures the notion of place. Even it, he, They'll travel long distances and then they'll be like, yeah, I remember that. I was there when I was a kid. And then like the next, like a month later, he'll recognize something else. And so it seems to be purposefully making it so we can't orient ourselves within any kind of place, there are no maps, right? And let alone, there are no maps, literal maps, but there are also very few signposts for us to be able to figure out, okay, how far along in this journey are they? Um, and that there's a number of reasons for that. Do you think this is a book that could only work under those circumstances? Um, is, it, is, is this book that only succeeds to the degree that it succeeds by obscuring the where they're going and where they're coming from. Sean, what do you think about that? That's a fascinating question that I think I think
3: I have been thinking about. <laughs> but <laughs> you think you've maybe, been thinking about it. Maybe from a different direction. So I was wondering and uh, a a close reader pointed out that the one name that we do see in the novel there's a name. Do you remember what the name is? It's a proper name.
1: No. We haven't met that person yet.
3: No, 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 no. no. Oh, yeah, I get, you're right. You're right. There's, there's a, there is a person that gets named. Uh, but I'm thinking of uh, early in the novel, there's a reference to Rock City.
1: Oh, and right. The, right, and the right, right. right. See Rock City.
3: See Rock City. And, uh, and I did wonder about that this time through a real touch point to a real place. I mean, that doesn't locate them in Rock City, but it locates them in a region of the United States that that is particular. Uh, And I wondered this time around whether that was important. And we do know, I mean, spoiler alert, by the end of the novel, we have some idea geographically of where they have been or where they're headed
2: Rock City is just a
3: granitic place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That granitic idea, Uh, Rock City. Uh, So I don't know if it has to efface all particular locality in order to work. But I think it's, at the same time, it's a book about the effacing of all particular locality, Uh, right? The, The places have been erased within the world of the novel. Uh, at one point, we've gotten here, right? At one point, they encounter his childhood home.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and it's quickly, I mean, every sign of his life there, any life there really, has been erased. Uh, and that is true of just about everywhere that they go. So I think that's important to the novel. But I don't know if that's the same as what you were asking about or the inverse of what you were asking about. I don't know either,
1: Heidi. <laughs> what do you think? I I think it. I don't think it's necessary because you know the Odyssey, of course, is the best one, um, and it's very specific and oriented in place. Um, and side note, when I was in Greece last summer, when I saw, like, I saw from the highway, the shores of Ithaca. And I started to cry. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. We didn't go there, but Good I job. saw it. Like, and I was so moved, right? Because I feel like Ithaca is my homeland because I love the Odyssey so much. And I like yearn with Odysseus to return home. Um, and and i yearn for Ithaca in a way that I feel like in a, I, in a small sense, I can't yearn for heaven because it's not specific. Because it feels so imaginary. Right. And so I attach it to a story, attach it like to Ithaca or Narnia or right, like or um, you know, the Grey Havens. Um, because the story gives me a framework and a and a, a descriptor that I can attach that kind of universal human longing to. Um, like I'd rather go to Narnia than to like the streets of gold. That but that's just so abstract, <laughs> right? Um so, and then of course heaven will be better than all of that. But and so in a in that way, I don't think we need it to be completely obscured for us to desire along with the characters and to experience along with characters. But I think it makes it more universal that we don't have those places. And to Sean's point, it makes the tragedy greater. Because we can't orient ourselves in any other way than emotionally than to the novel. Then like then than the existential experience of being on the road to nowhere. Like and and even their urgence, like we always have to be moving. Part of that's survival oriented they have to they're trying there it's it's the winter and they have to find a way to survive which means they need to keep moving um but part of it is also like how do you live in a place when you have no goal no telos Mm. no purpose like how do you live in the world without something to get up for and there's no community there's no there's no place um there's no life to build. And so the solution to that, I guess, is to just keep moving because you have something to do every day, question mark. <laughs> so that, I, I think what it does is it creates an existential dilemma that is made more poignant by the fact that we have no physical markers to orient and or ground ourselves in as the reader.
2: Tim? You know, I, think the, gonna... I think the play, the play, I think that the book is better with a dearth of particularity. Right. And, and yeah. I think it is because I, I agree with people who think that this is kind of like a f- fable or fableistic. I think that's right. I think that first time readers should read it according to the meaning that it first presents, which is this is a survival story. And I think that the kind of like fabulistic meaning of the book will rise up the deeper we get into it. You know, this is what makes really great literature work is that it works on multiple different levels. And each one of those different levels is compelling in its own right. And I think just the survival story is riveting and hard to turn away even though you kind of want to turn away at certain points like page 86 or whatever it is like oh oh man i do not (laughs) want to go back i don't want to go back to that place um but anyway i think the meaning arises because it does have less particularity to it
0: should we talk about
2: what to tell people who are
0: who are scared like heidi (laughs) when you first read the book did you feel that way tim
2: Oh, yeah. There are a couple of scenes that are the as scary as anything I've ever read in any book. Um yeah. And we we read one of them in the reading that we did when they go into the house. The boy is very afraid. And the father's like, we're, we're in desperate situation here. We have to find food. And they find something that they do not want to find. It's terrifying. Like, yeah. I... I didn't want to read it at night. Like, I'm a grown man. I'm a grown man. And I was like, I don't know that I can do this. You know, reading this at 10 p.m. at night.
0: Tim, it's okay. grown men can be scared, too. Don't perpetuate the stigma. That's right. (laughs) You're right. For me, Tim, don't perpetuate it. (laughs) So, Sean, I mean, do you you feel the same way that Heidi did? Uh, Was I also scared when I read it the first time? Yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah, I mean, you, my experience is, is like Tim's. Uh, the, that is the experience of the novel. I mean, you, you really do dread awful things occurring and you encounter some awful things that, that occur, which only heighten the, the dread as you go further, uh, right? And because of the, the tone and the circumstances, you can't help but think there's no way that this could end except badly, and I think that's one of the the successes of the novel, because that's also what the characters are wrestling with is mm-hmm. despair. And I think you're I've drawn into the same temptation to despair as you as you read the novel.
0: Yeah. So what do we tell people then who are like, why should it have, why should Heidi have kept reading that first time?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, Heidi, why I would you I answer had. that? Yeah. I wish I had kept reading. I have like a thing about reading stories about kids being in danger. And yeah. it was like, it was that I was so afraid for this little boy. Um, and then when I heard his mother had committed, when I read, when I read that his mom had given up on him, like in a, and in, in, I just was like, I can't read mm, this. You
3: said, I'm going to give up on him too.
1: I, I'm going to root <laughs> for him by. From
0: a distance.
1: Yes. Eliminating. <laughs> myself from this boy's suffering but i wish i had finished it then um but it's not like a moral failure that i didn't nobody has to oh sure sure right right. like and so i will say that to our listeners who are choosing not to like you don't have to read it we we are not you are not in school (laughs) there's no reading police um but we're not grading yes and and giving up on a book
3: isn't despairing because yes. the book is not written by God.
1: Right? Exactly. And Cormac McCarthy, I think he's actually just wrong about a lot of things. And I think he did. I think he gives up as a, I think that he didn't go deep enough, not in this book, but just like he wanted hope. There is hope, right? Um, And, but in this book, he is, he is bringing forth a particular image or archetype of hope, which is, Deep personal particular relationship. Um, he even says that at the very beginning, like about um, about God. What is the line? If He is not the Word of God, God never spoke. Right, and it's very yeah. much that kind of Lamez idea that like to love another person is to see the face of God, and I think that's true. And I, this book is about that, right? And um, I. I think that the disturbing elements of this book are absolutely not gratuitous in any way. And there's a couple of scenes that, if you haven't read past this section, they're going to startle you and be they're very disturbing. Um, the whole blood cult thing we even see in this section. And that is not gratuitous because in order to... Bring forward the temptation to despair, they have to give us something to despair about like and no. and, and and in a world that is tremendously dangerous in many ways this book is absolutely... we we keep talking about it being dark and and it is dark, but it's this is how all of us would feel and it's very realistic, given the situation that these people are in um and they're trying so hard to not give up and in, in the face, not only of starvation and exposure, but of a very real and imminent peril uh, yeah. that raises the question of, is life worth living in a world where such and such happens? and, so Cormac McCarthy had to give us a world that was perilous beyond something that we've ever encountered right now. And yeah, and he he's explaining our Connor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's drawing it in these big cartoon caricatures.
2: What you're describing, Heidi, is not unlike A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. The frame around that novel is it's a Siberian prison camp. There is no outside. There is no outside. We are locked into this system with Ivan Denisevich, and we're navigating life according to these rules. And I think that book succeeds incredibly because of the kind of compactness and relentlessness of the system that Ivan is in. And I think it applies in the same way here, the father and son are, there is no out. There is no alternative. This is the world by no force of will. Can you step outside of this world? You can just survive. And I think it's, it's so compelling because the question that keeps getting put before the reader is, um, can you remain good? in this situation. And I think Solzhenitsyn had an answer in Ivan in the in in a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. And we're reading to see what McCarthy's answer is going to be in this book.
0: There's an incredible passage on page 77. And I think the 74, 75, 76, 77 range are really essential pages to this book, but I'll just read. um, It's after they've, they've seen well, they've, they've, killed, they've killed a man. Um, and uh, he, they, he says he, he rinsed the empty tin with water and gave it to the child to drink, and that was that. I should have been more careful, he said. The boy didn't answer. You have to talk to me. Okay. You wanted to know what the bad guys looked like. Now you know. It may happen again. My job is to take care of you. I was appointed to do that by God. I will kill anyone who touches you. Do you understand? Yes. He sat there, cowled in the blanket. After a while, he looked up. Mm. Are we still the good guys? He said. Yes, we're still the good guys. And we always will be? Yes, we always will be. Okay. So, first of all, it gets to that idea of, like, vocation or calling that Heidi was mentioning a little bit ago, that part of what's the, the Father's calling is, like, there's a hope in that. And he says, yeah, I was appointed by God to do that. Like, that's not very nihilistic, That's right. of a statement to make, and I'll, and then he says, "I'll kill anyone who touches you." Like this calling by God to defend you, I will do to the to the ends of the earth. Um, and and the what's fascinating is that the boy then introduces the moral dilemma. The boy is the one who is concerned that killing someone to protect him will make them into the bad guys that they won't maintain their goodness anymore, and I find that that dilemma that's introduced there through the eyes of the child and not the, the father doesn't seem to have a lot of uh, question of that. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't want to kill the guy, but mostly he doesn't want to kill the guy because he doesn't want to make any noise, but he doesn't have any doubts as to whether of the justice of his cause, but the boy who's being protected does. And I find that very moving and fascinating. Yeah. And right before that, go ahead, Tim. go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to go in a slightly different direction, so let's stay where you are, Dan. That's oh, okay. We can come back to what I.
2: The next thing I'm going to say is, we'll say it later. I read an article recently, um, and the title was something to the effect of Why the Road is the Best Parenting Book that's Ever Been <laughs> Read. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do your clickbait. And I read the article, and I was like, this is actually a really great article. <laughs> it was written by a woman whose family was... In, I think believe they were in Katrina. And so they were displaced, and she and her family like basically lived a life that was at least comparable to the life, as close as like maybe we might get to the characters in the road. And part of what she highlights is that when you're in that situation, desperate, desperate situation. You don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You don't know where your next drink of water is going to come from. You don't know if you're going to have a warm bed that night or not. You as an adult are constantly in this state of, well, am I going to do just whatever it takes and become the kind of person that will do whatever it takes? If I do that, my kids are watching and, it communicates kind of everything about what I believe. And furthermore, the article goes on to say, like the number of refugees living in the world right now is surely at an all-time historical high. Like 10 years ago, it was 20 million people. Now it's 30 million people. And so this is not a small number of people that are like encountering the world. It, it kind of in a way... Like this, father and son are encountering the world, and so this is a very live question: what the father and son in this book are going to do? Because these are like the lived circumstances of thirty million refugees yeah. today.
0: Well, this brings actually comes back to what I was going to say because Heidi brought up the the mother earlier, who we, who you know, as she put it, she leaves them, she abandons her son because she can't do it anymore, and that kind of raises the question what would you do and not just mm-hmm. would you use the bullet on yourself out of despair, but why would you like, what's the point of going on is one of the questions that's that's just hovering over this book. That's why there's nowhere to go to. Like there is no home to eventually that you're journeying to. You're just journeying to Warmer stay weather. alive, <laughs> right? You're trying to get South so that you don't die. But what do you, what is, what do you not, Dying for. I mean, right. the father's not dying for the son, but what is he keeping the son alive for, too? You know, like what's, mm-hmm. what beautiful, what beauty, what truth, what goodness is he, is he taking his son to? And I think that that, that, that it kind of points it at you as the reader and says, what, what would you do? And so I personally, I find a lot of hope in the, in, in this, this book because despite all of that, he they just persevere like the perseverance is the hope. Now I know we get to the end of the book, and I think there's more to it. But even in this section here, the idea of persevering simply out of love or because because the notion of being alive actually matters. And that there's there's truth goodness in that, truth goodness and beauty in that. I find that to be a hopeful concept that keeps me reading, you know, that keeps me going in a way that I don't think that shows up in say Blood Meridian. I, I personally think Bud mm-hmm. Meridian is a superior yeah. novel, but I don't think that it's it's bleak. It's bleak in a way that this version doesn't have, and I can only imagine the degree to which having a son changed the way McCarthy thought about these stories. And he, you know, I said he was visiting somewhere, I think Santa Fe or something, El Paso maybe, with it, and his son was with him, and that's where the inspiration for the story came. And, you know, he sat on it for a while as his son grew up and then he wrote it in six weeks. And the figure of the son and the relationship that he had with his son informed what this story became. And that wasn't there in, in Blood Meridian. And I, I think that it's, um, I think that in that way, it's like pro- kind of profoundly hopeful come what may. <laughs> do you do you agree with that, Heidi? Like now that you've,
1: totally now that you did keep that. going? Yes. Okay. I completely agree with that. And I think that that's, from the beginning that McCarthy is presenting a deeply transcendent moral order and that in, in looking at his son, he is, he has a purpose to his life and the, the two are different, right? They are, they don't have names. So therefore they're everybody. Right. Um, and when you're not a particular person in a novel, you're every person, that's <laughs> the way it is. Um, but they're different. Like the son is absorbing his father's ethical world, but he's also challenging it in this section, right? Why don't we help the boy? Why don't we help the man struck by lightning? He wants to help. He wants to be moral. He continues to uh, orient his father uh, towards a moral order. Um, And the father is willing to do that for love of his son, and so in that way, the son is saving the father, just as the father is saving the son. Like it's this mutual, this symbiotic, salvific impulse in the two of them that binds them together and 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 creates a bond that is good. And to your point, David, that's why the world has to be so bad in this. That's why we have to have the scenes that are coming. That's why we have to have the threats of violence. That's why we have to have the near starvation and exposure. And the fact that when they find a good place, they have to leave it, mm-hmm. right? They can't build a life in any good place because they know that other people will come and then they will be in for their danger. So their life is the road. It goes back to the title. Their life is the road. Um, and... And, and so they're not on a quest. They're not on a journey, a home, right? It's not a homecoming story. It's not a quest narrative. It is simply that they are living in a communal bond of love with one another in the face of darkness. And I think to the point you just made a few minutes ago, that becomes then this, Metaphorical thought experiment to us in the modern wasteland. Um, that is very real for McCarthy, and I think I feel when I'm reading McCarthy because I know that he's not a Christian or that that he uh, that he has been kind of taken under by the darkness and giving up on his Catholic upbringing. I feel a sense of precariousness when I read him. Um, Because the question for him is, for the author himself, is so real. Um, And I then kind of can't quite put my weight down on the moral world. I feel a bit disoriented in it. And that pulls me in, I think, beyond the security I feel as a Christian into being able to relate more closely to this is a real question for most people. Yeah, and a Sean, real dilemma, what? even for us.
0: Hmm. You, what were you going to say something, Sean?
3: Uh, I think just what Heidi's saying, I think, is absolutely right, and I think that you are making me realize that I think that is also part of the the trepidation you experience as a reader reading this novel. Uh, there is this sense, and maybe, it, maybe it's strengthened by a broader familiarity with McCarthy's work and thought. That's but, right. Uh, there is this trepidation, not only because you fear what will happen in the novel, but I think that's right, because uh, you sense that the question is an open question, not only for the character, but for... The person telling the story, and that's scary <laughs>
0: because it's uncertain. Yes. And do we talk about the fatherhood part of this for you? Has this heightened all this? Oh, we, you mentioned it at the beginning, but um, like this stuff that we're talking about—that does it? Does all? Do, do the dilemmas of the book funny. get heightened for you?
2: Yes, but I have to say, with a caveat, and I'm I. I'm just going to say this and regret it later. <laughs> uh, I might sound a little bit sexist in saying <laughs> this. Uh. Just say it, man. Um, You're I'm sure it won't say be the something first controversial,
0: time. man. It's fine.
2: <laughs> There's something about this that does feel like a father and son story. Yeah. And I, because of course it is a father and son <laughs> story more than a father and daughter That's story. True. I don't know that this story works as well if it's a daughter you know why
3: i think that is and why i think it, because part of it part of the dynamic is protection but part of it is the father understanding that he sort of has to replace himself or that that he's training the son uh, he's training his son to be a man he's teaching his son to be a man
2: yeah
0: also Gorman yeah. had a son well, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but like, like
3: he's not in a not in a purely pragmatic being, way, but he's trying I'm to replicate himself in his son, yeah, right? Uh, and that dynamic is different right. between a, a father and a daughter than it is for a father and a son.
0: How do you think it would be different if it was, yeah, a daughter, Tim? Gosh,
2: what a hard question to answer. It's, I mean, it's sure.
0: it's a, I mean um, I'm throwing these hypotheticals out there for the sake of conversation that. You know, there's no way to be... I,
3: I mean, yeah, do you I think, think you would want... What would you want different for a daughter? Maybe as a father, maybe that's a, a different way to phrase the question. Like, what would, would your desires be different somehow?
2: I think so. I th- I think... I mean, you're tapping into something, Sean. I do think that the father's goal is to have his son replace him by becoming a man. And I don't know. I think a father daughter story would be much more this is what i think about the father protecting his daughter and getting her to a place right. that she can live and survive rather than coming to emulate him of course we want our daughters to like emulate us as fathers in certain ways but in other ways it, it just it doesn't it's not the yeah. same I of your
1: thoughts on this? No, I just agree with that. I think that that's true. The anxiety for a girl is different, I think, in this situation and in in this world. Um, And the the needful anxiety for the road is the continuity of one generation to the next. Um, In its, I I think, in its masculine engagement with a dangerous world. Um, And... And there's this and and I think also because this the so much of the memory aspect of this, like the dream mm-hmm. sequences, um the the man remembering his own upbringing and kind of yeah. unconsciously not even knowing he's doing so, lamenting that his son cannot have that, yeah, he wants like his. The one risk that the man takes in this section is going into his childhood home. And mm. everything else, it's the son who wants to take a risk and the father who doesn't, right? Um, but here he just can't help but go see the place where he grew up and remember himself as a child. And then in, in seeing the son, he's seeing a version of himself that that I think we would, as the audience, would be robbed of if it was a daughter, and and I and so I think that this novel works because of that mirroring aspect, just as much as the survival aspect.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It, it's interesting to read the dream memory sequence with the wife with the mother, where she basically says, you know, when they come, I'm. What am I fighting for? They're going to come yeah. and they're going to curse God and die. They're, they're going to rape me and they're going to, you know, like this. Mm-hmm. That's right. In some ways, I think you know, like her, that. Her dilemma is like heightened in a specifically feminine way that I actually I find pretty compelling, and I, yeah. I find to be one of the more emotionally wrought, heart wrenching sections yeah. of the book. And I wonder if if it was a girl, it would almost be it'd Be it would be like what it is t- times 10 right now. But like what the current version of it times 10, as far as the emotional stakes. Yeah. Um, because I wanna, ultimately, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead.
1: No, no, no. Finish please.
0: Cause ultimately, I, I don't know what I was going to say. That's pretty much it. I just think it would be heightened if it was a girl.
1: I agree. And I, I want to go on the record saying that there's been I can't think of a character that a literary character that I have less sympathy for than this mother. (laughs) I hate her. Like (laughs) I can't even, I can barely even read it to like leave your son. Like that's despair. That is beyond my ability to sympathize with. Even in such a bleak world. Like I just judge her so hard.
2: Guys, do, where do you, f- Heidi, can I, <clears throat> I just want to like present a counter case to Heidi. I'm completely sympathetic with you, Heidi. That's sure. my no, no, forward. No, I get that. <laughs> I, I, I think try to that- put
1: forward my failure as a reader whenever I can, <laughs> because we talk about reading all the time. So this is me being like, I can't enter that.
2: <laughs> Go ahead. Part of the reason I have, maybe with David, maybe you said the same thing some sympathy for the mother is that I do think that she, she has almost a complete loss of agency because the world that is overtaking them is a, it is a world that is dominated by the physical and nothing else. And I, and I do think this is part of the reason I think also why it's a father and son and not a father and daughter story is because they're, I just wonder if there's a little bit more of a sense of physical agency just because of the brute facts that men tend to be stronger and bigger than women. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I just wonder if that's I, – I can sympathize with the mother despairing because her physical agency has been completely taken from her due to the circumstances of I the book. I would
1: – I would agree with that if she didn't leave an even more help physically helpless person behind.
2: Oh yeah. Dude, that's a great counter. That's a you great counter. Do you judge her? I stand corrected. Well, except
0: that she would she would say that I what can I do? You're gonna take care of him. That's I
3: she, think what she's but saying. She
1: doesn't say that. She says, right. What can I do? I'm gonna leave him behind to be raped and murdered by the blood cults. So just you like should you should kill
3: him and yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, do you judge mother the way that Heidi does? I I I do I find it hard not to and it's for that reason right there's uh, there's the despair of the individual that that results in the killing of themselves but this is a despair that sort of consciously results in the killing of other people right at least in theory she is she is content to leave her son to whatever fate uh, because she doesn't have the uh, the courage or the desire to continue in in the life as she sees it.
1: And I, I think that's that,
3: to, It's hard to yeah. sympathize. And I,
1: I, I do, actually don't think Cormac McCarthy holds her up as somebody to sympathize with. I don't think we're necessarily, we're just right. told what happens. Yeah. We're not invited right. to sympathize yeah. or not. Like, um, the book doesn't I mean, he does judge use her, her or sympathize with her. But I do think that it is more than anything else. It's that that shows the despair of the novel. like the despair yeah. of the world of the novel is, is yeah. the the willingness of a mother to abandon her child to danger is so inhuman that this place is so bad. And so that I think highlights the the heroism of the father um, yeah. and the enduring spirit of these of these of this this man and, and his son um, and and so I think we need it. I think that that, we need that to show how bad it is. Um, but I just, it's just so hard for, it's just hard as a mom. Yeah. Like you guys talk about like, what's it like as a father with a son? I'm like, as a mom <laughs> there, I can't even conceive of a situation in which this would even enter my head.
0: Mm, yeah. I, I, Yeah. I think if she does, if that's not there in the book, the emotional, like I'm a just tree. talking from a formal perspective, not like it I'm raises the wrong. stakes
1: so high. There, no, I agree with that. Go ahead. Well, I, I don't know what you're about to say. Maybe I don't. Well, that's what I was basically going to say.
0: I, I actually have find this book to be, um, what I was going to say is too strong. I find this book to be emotionally inaccessible at times which I know is not what everybody's experience is. And I think that I'm constantly uh, reaching for an antecedent for the emotion that it's trying to... Like a precedent. Antecedent's better. For the emotion that it's trying to draw up within me. And I think at times it wears that too much on its sleeve Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't find in All the Pretty Horses and um, No Country. Um, But I think that that, that in The Mother's Choice there is so much antecedent for the emotion that it's driving. And so when that happens, it raises the emotional stakes and the relationship, the, like the pitch of the relationship between them. It's not just that the world has fallen apart around them. It's not just that people have died around them. It's that their most beloved person has chosen to leave them. And so there is like a, there is an emotional, there's a depth of emotion and a and a, it's created like a, a bond between them. And I, I don't, know how else to say I don't know how to say that in a way that's not doesn't sound like it I'm not saying it's a good thing that happened I'm just saying from a storytelling perspective it's effective it's it's effective Mm -hmm. Um, I agree and and I I do think you saw you talk about the idea that you can't conceive of that kind of a of a despair that works for for me now I'm not a mom Sure. So there's a certain motherly.
1: I'm not a father, but that. I love this book. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I, well, that it works for me that you. She has such a deep despair that I can't conceive of mercifully, and so I have sympathy for her in the sense that I can't conceive of the kind of the despair that would lead someone to do that. That's that's kind mm-hmm. of the only that's the only response I have to what you're saying. Right. That I can't conceive of it of the degree too much the the degree to which she was despairing. And so that in and of itself leads me to have a degree of sympathy, although no empathy. (laughs) Right. Um, So that would be my only response to what you're saying. Otherwise, I think you're onto it. Yeah, Um, I think that's fair. We should probably wrap this up here pretty soon. Um, Tim, do you want to talk about the the, the fabulous uh, nature of this book at all? Like what makes this a fable? Quickly, we can talk about that here for a minute.
2: I think because the plot is so simple... I think because the father and son are very deliberately nameless, that we kind of are thrust into sort of thinking of them as every man, every son. Those are two things that come to my mind. I suppose the archetypes. Yeah. yeah. How
0: do? What? How else would you, do you? Where else? Where else do you see the, the fabu- What is the word? Fabulous? Fabular? What is it? I don't Fabulous? know. Fabulous. I bet it's fabular. fable-like. Fable-like. It's fable-like. Fabular. Yeah, yeah. Fable-like. That's right. Fable-like. We can be conv- We can know that we can use that properly.
1: Um, <laughs> fabulous
0: I think, is not the word.
1: <laughs> when I think of a fable, I think of a, uh, I, I think of of a simple kind of moral world, and I think that that's true here. I think that we have the opportunity to see good and evil in stark contrasts um and the uh in the necessity of choosing the good um when this man without his son we see on the razor's edge he is like he could go he could become um just another self-seeking vicious savage survivalist and he'd um, be good at it and yeah and but he has this this boy who has a goodness to him and has not yet lost his humanity or given up hope in a moral world and in participating in it. And so, and I, I think that there's that, that kind of moral divining line is another way that it's like a fable.
0: Ron, anything to add?
3: Nope. I think that's great. Sums it up.
0: All right, let's do some final thoughts. Things we're looking forward to, you know,
2: open-ended. <laughs> There was a different working title for this book during the writing of it. I will not reveal it during this podcast. That's what we call a cliffhanger next, next week.
1: Tune in next week
2: as Tim reveals the alternate title for The Road.
0: That's a granitic tease. It is. These boots were made for walking. <laughs> Cliffhanger. That's the new term for a cliffhanger. A granitic team. What if
2: that was the other title? He was like, I just wanted to... Like, it's such a downer of a book. I wanted to give it some pep." These boots were made for a walk was the working title. <laughs> that would be so great. Heidi,
0: any guesses?
1: No, I don't. And I don't have any final thoughts because I just wanted to end on that cliffhanger.
0: Cliffhanger! Sean? Well...
3: I feel some pressure from Heidi to also omit final thoughts for the sake no, of the No, you don't have to do that. You don't
1: have to. You don't have to.
3: It's okay. I can always go back to Tim and he can say it again.
1: Okay.
3: I, that's it. I don't I don't have any final thoughts. Of my own free will, being of sound
0: mind and body, I, 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 I yield my, my final thought.
3: thoughts.
0: <laughs> I mean, suit yourself. Um, okay, well... We are going to discuss through page um one hundred and ninety-eight. I'm on page one hundred and ninety-eight next time. So a little over hundred pages. Did you guys find this book goes quick?
3: Yes. Oh, yeah. You I guys was. are pretty yes. much done. So. Yeah, I had to stop
0: myself from finishing it. It was just it was just gonna happen. Um, don't forget about all the great content over on Close Reads HQ. We are going through Kristen Lavranzada right now. We have our mystery episodes. Don't forget about Tim's final episode of the Place the Thing and all the 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 what do you call a podcast? The, what are the back issues in a podcast? All the episodes that you can listen to? Previous episodes? Previous episodes? All the previous episodes. The archives. The back. Archives, catalog, the back yeah. catalog, whatever. All the stuff, all the content that's available to you. Uh, Tim, well done on that. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, how are you feeling about that? you feel good about it or do you
2: miss it already? Both. I feel like it's a big accomplishment and I also miss it. But it's going to live on. We, w- we will bring up past episodes again in the feed and i'm going to be supplementing it with interviews um other stuff yeah so the the podcast is definitely going to keep going but we've just completed all of the plays and that was a lot and i feel proud
0: (laughs) you should and then sean's been doing yeoman's work on the daily poem, so shout out to sean for that so Go listen if you if you want a daily dose of poetry. Thanks, of course, to Logan for producing these episodes. For you know, making us sound better, taking out the stuff when we say, "Hey, Logan, check <laughs> that out." I said something just stupid.
3: Enduring us all the time. He, right. Yeah. I think about that all the time. How much Logan has to listen to us?
0: I used to have to. I used to edit these episodes, and let me tell you, being on the episode and then listening to the episode was oh, just a lot. Yeah. Um, and no one wants to listen to themselves anyway. So Logan, thank you for saving me from the scourge of having to listen to my own voice. Nonetheless, to those of you who endure the scourge of listening to my voice and also the voices of Tim, Heidi, and Sean, thank you very much for doing so. Thanks for supporting the show. Until next time, happy reading and thanks for listening.